Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and thank you for being a listener. And I'm getting the sense, sensing it in my feeling, that one of one of our listeners has, has a name that starts with an A. Today we are diving into intuition and what's good intuition, what's bad intuition, and the whole role of trusting your gut. And part of this started out with something that we've noticed in the therapist community. I wrote a blog somewhat recently about how trusting your gut is a bad thing. And... We're going to dive into that a little bit deeper today. We're going to incorporate some of the suggestions and criticisms from you, our listeners. We do actually pay attention to the things that you send us and weave that in as we get here. But I am guaranteeing we have a listener whose name starts with a day. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, my mom's name starts with A. So I'm sure she's listening. I think it's something where so many people value clinical intuition, trusting their gut. And the research shows that it isn't necessarily always possible for you to actually trust your gut. And there is a wealth of research under clinical intuition. And a lot of it is on ways to do it correctly, ways that it has worked out, case examples of clinicians who have intuited something with a client that we're going to kind of dive into that as far as what actually stands up to the annals of time in some of these research articles, but also better ways to develop clinical intuition. So that way you're using clinical tuition in the most effective way possible. And we're also going to debunk a couple of ideas around what has kind of permeated into the clinical and the counseling professions around intuition. But I think that starting out with some definitions around what intuition is might actually benefit us here. So we are going with four definitions of what intuition is, and I think that doing this helps to separate out the the psychics who sense somebody's name starts with an A or stand in front of a large crowd and sense that somebody had somebody pass on recently that is just kind of an intuitive parlor trick. 
mm-hmm. versus what we would use in a clinical setting. And so the four types of intuition is mysticism. This is kind of that information transferred from an act of God. There's spurious intuition, which is kind of this post facto shining successes. You ignore the blunders that you've done before and you only latch on to the ones that worked and you use those as kind of anchors as far as proving your methods right. There's inferential intuition, a judgment in which visual and verbal cues are so rapidly and subliminally observed that their contributions to the final decision are virtually forgotten. And then there's holistic intuition, which is unobserved things that influence our thinking, whether it's gaps or missing pieces or hidden relationships. And these are going into the models that we use through time that we spend in our discipline. And this is the one where good clinical intuition really can come from with the work that we're talking about in the rest of this episode. We're going to reference quite a few different things throughout this episode. You can find links to all of this stuff in our show notes. You'll find that at mtsgpodcast.com. These definitions are coming from an article by Glenn Brokensha, and we're going to just start from there. But Katie, do you trust your gut? Sometimes. (laughs) Correct answer for this episode, at least. (laughs) But I wanted to talk a little bit about the definitions really quickly. So when I'm hearing these definitions, what I'm hearing is that there are three problematic types of intuition and one that can be problematic, but if it's done properly, could actually be positive clinical intuition. Yes. Okay. And I think mystical, there's potentially folks who have other perspectives on that, that, that it can be done properly. And then there also are charlatans and, but that's not really where we're going today. No, as far no, as we we're, are, we're really, we're, we are done with the telepsychic standing in front of the audience jokes. Got it. Okay. So we can move on from the, the mystical intuition. And so really what we're looking at is spurious, spurious, spurious and inferential as the ones that are most obviously wrong and and problematic. And the reason I'm bringing those up in particular is because I feel like there are things that I learned in grad school that definitely align with that and that I recognize were already a problem, like confirmatory bias. You know, that you, you look for evidence that what you assume to be true is true. And so to me, that feels like that's ingrained, but I think it's, you know, that knowledge is ingrained. So I would theoretically fight against it. But what I'm hearing and what I've read, I I was reading this book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People by Banaji and Greenwald, is that we almost, even though we know that it is true, we don't, that this thing happens, that we have this confirmatory bias, we don't necessarily recognize that happening in ourselves. Right. And I think that there's a a number of different theoretical models that can explain that. I was trained as a behaviorist at one point in my career, and this just ends up becoming, you know, Skinner's operant conditioning at some point. Mm -hmm. You end up getting rewarded enough in thinking one way and finding whatever information in the environment that ends up supporting that, then pair that enough times, and that becomes its own sort of reward after enough repetitions. 
And so clinically, if we look at confirmatory bias and the ways that can come up for therapists, it can be, I recognize the number of times I was correct that a client walking into my door was going to disclose a particular type of trauma and not the times when my assumptions were incorrect. Right. That's a discounting effect. That's discounting the times that you were wrong and not really evaluating how often that you are correct. And you know, it's not pleasurable to be wrong. It's no. <laughs> And so if you end up ignoring that, then that does not actually reinforce good clinical work. That only reinforces this idea of what your, what your gut is doing. And mm-hmm. I, I apologize only slightly to people into astrology, but you know, how many times do you hear, oh, Mercury's in retrograde. This is why things are happening or falling apart right now. That, you know, that may ignore all of the good things that are happening while Mercury's in retrograde, but it becomes kind of this confirmatory discounting any information that doesn't necessarily fit with the theory that you're putting forth. So with confirmatory bias or the discounting effect or those types of things where we're really looking for evidence that proves us right and not evidence that proves us wrong, it feels like it would be threatening for someone to actually pull out and actually look at both things that support and disprove what they're trying to, to prove, I guess. But you can't tell me that because I invested tens of thousands of dollars into a graduate degree and worked for years (laughs) for free. I am deemed by my license to be able to practice and do this kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So there can be a bit of ego is what you're saying. Ego and an effort and kind of saying, I worked really hard. I should be able to make these assumptions. Right. And, you know, this is kind of cynical way of of looking at this, but the more that we end up not engaging in a way of evaluating ourselves in the way that we we work, ends up only reinforcing bad practices. Mm -hmm. And this is where that shift, you're, you're calling it threatening. I'm going to call it as a laborious and time intensive evaluation process that that part, just saying it that way might be threatening, but (laughs) that is whether or not we actually become successful in what we do. And this is where the deliberate practice aspect of it comes in, that, you know, this is akin to only looking at, well, my clients like me because I have several clients who keep coming back while discounting the ones that drop you after a first session or second session and oh the, that client wasn't ready to, for therapy or mm-hmm. any of those kind of passive dismissals that we might be making the deliberate practice though when it comes to you know testing whether or not your intuition and trusting your gut is correct and this is the basis of of the blog article that I had written was around Daniel Kahneman's book thinking fast and slow And he talks about that we have kind of two systems of thought. One is this very quick information sort of reactionary thing that we don't pay a whole lot of attention to. And the other is kind of this slower, more deliberate process that takes a lot of mental resource and a lot of mental energy in order to be able to evaluate, is our automatic thoughts actually being 
used in a way that is correct and informative. And if this sounds a lot like CBT... I was just going to say that. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) But this is not just necessarily, you know, looking at, you know, are, are my assumptions correct and making a decision to go in one direction or another, but this is to that deeper level of understanding why are these thoughts coming up in this moment? And especially for us clinicians, where this practice comes in and the repetitive testing of what these gut feelings are have to be tested in a way that is comprehensive and evaluative based on our own process. It's not just this shot in the dark sort of, you know, is this successful sort of thing? It doesn't necessarily even just have to be around problematic behaviors, which is where, well, I guess, you know, I was going to say, this is where it starts to deviate from CBT, but, you know, the CBT people out there are like, everything's CBT, so. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all behavior and thoughts. And, but this is really starting to bridge that gap between what theoretical work is and what it is to be put into practice. And so those things that seem like automatic, just sort of reactions that you want to put in place end up needing to be tested and evaluated every single time, not just in the times where it doesn't seem like they're not working. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So doing this deliberate practice in all situations so that we don't have this tendency to just look at problematic behaviors and and skew the data in that situation too. Mm-hmm. So when we're wanting to objectively look at the data or our theories or our philosophies or the data that's presented and make sure that we're not making assumptions, I think a lot of folks would see that as, well, at a certain point, I'm going to get really good at this and I don't need to take that laborious process and actually go through the whole process. And I, I like to consider it like the scientific method. Let's actually look at both sides, right? And and I will agree with those people once certain conditions are met. Okay. But, yeah. So before we get to that, I want to talk about kind of going back to blind spot. There are potentially evolutionarily helpful quote unquote mind bugs. This is their their language for this, or somebody else put it and then they kind of kept using it. That we have to actually be aware of and fight against because there's this huge tendency towards bias. 
And so some of it is kind of the the stuff that we were talking about before it kind of aligns with confirmatory bias, but it's called a, the availability heuristic, which, you know, your friend Kahneman was part of that as well. And it's like, we only really look at the information that's readily available to us, which is understandable. And so we can kind of find against that when we, you know, kind of consciously, deliberately get more data. So we're, we're not looking just at what is present, but looking at some of the other things. But I think the the work of Elizabeth Loftus is also mentioned in this book and kind of this misinformation effect, even in how we ask the question or how the question is asked from us can impact how we remember or how we engage with the data. Because it's it's something where, you know, if you think about how, you know, I think the the description in the book was kind of like if if you're if you ask somebody how fast was the car going when it hit the other car versus how fast was the car going when it smashed into the other car? You're going to get a much higher speed when you talk about smashing into the car versus hitting the car. So even, even in you know, kind of how we assess data, it can be impacted by how we're interacting with that data. And so I think these these mind bugs, just even about kind of objectively assessing data, we actually have to be very aware of of our brains in a much larger fashion. There's all sorts of these biases that exist and Mm -hmm. the way to get through them is not to get to some sort of Sherlock Holmesian sort of deductive (laughs) intuition. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's being able to look at things in, in an inductive way, not a deductive way. And I'll get back to that in just a moment because I had said that when certain conditions get met, Mm-hmm. as far as when this can actually be utilized correctly. And this is going back to Kahneman. And he laid out that there are three conditions to where intuition can be really deliberately worked on. One is that this needs to be something that regularly occurs, where a lot of learning can occur. So this is not something where good intuition is developed out of one or two trials, but over the course of hundreds, if not thousands of, of different events. Got it. And one of the ways that he explains this is you know when a soda is expensive because chances are you buy several sodas over the course of a year. You don't know when a mattress is overpriced because mm. you don't have as much experience in negotiating whether or not that is a condition that is happening often enough in order to really be able to intuit that something is overpriced in a mattress store. Except for like hotel owners who would, of course, you know, the people who do purchasing for hotels would, would have that knowledge because they purchase probably thousands of mattresses. Right. And so that brings the second condition is not only the regularity of it, but a lot of practice about it and being able to make trial and error sort of mistakes and to be able to learn from those mistakes in those conditions with the third condition, which is immediate feedback. That if you made something where it takes several years in order to see, oh, I was wrong about that, that that doesn't have that learning point, that anchoring point about I was wrong that really helps to shift the way that you continue to evaluate the world. And so this is where, you know, we're, we're big fans of the deliberate practice, Scott Miller sort of movement. Mm-hmm. And this is where some of that immediacy is 
getting that feedback immediately with your clients. It's not just about getting the feedback, but it's the immediacy of it that then allows for you to transition what you're doing. It's the immediacy of going through your recorded sessions with a supervisor or consultant that helps you to be able to evaluate what the information is that you're either picking up on or not. And this is coming back to the Sherlock Holmes point is it also needs to be done in a way that is not just looking to fit things within the view that you already have. That's deductive Mm -hmm. reasoning, but also looking for things that can prove you wrong. So for instance, if you're a practitioner who works with a lot of clients on the spectrum and you see a kid in your office that's very anxious when a routine is disrupted, might engage in you know some sort of emotional dysregulation about that. You may be looking only for reasons for this child to be diagnosed on the spectrum when this could very much be obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's being able to take in that information that you're looking not only to support your initial hypothesis, but you're also looking for evidence that doesn't support it. Going back to Mm -hmm. Katie's point of scientific methods, try and prove that null hypothesis wrong. I think that's so important because too many people, I think, get very comfortable and have a lot of experience. But and and this goes to the the actual practice versus just a lot of experience and immediate feedback, because I think if we only do I think what you're saying is like condition A and C, that, that, that there's a lot of experience and we get immediate feedback if we aren't actually practicing and responding to the feedback or if the feedback is heavily impacted by what we're expecting to happen <laughs> so that we're looking even from the feedback and, and only taking the positive feedback from clients, for example, versus actually looking at all the feedback. If we don't actually use it as a practice and really sort through what were my assessments accurate or not, I think we can get caught in this stage of being so t- like it's tunnel vision really, right? Like, mm. You know, I think we've talked about this on an episode before, but at the agency where I was working, we would joke that we've got the ADHD psychiatrist, the PTSD psychiatrist, and the bipolar psychiatrist. And so we would actually try to do more of our own assessment prior to deciding who we wanted to send them to because we knew no matter what they came in with, they would diagnose them with those diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and they were not bad psychiatrists. I know it sounds horrible, but they they would you know they would find you know treatment and they would they would assess and they would do those things. But the diagnoses very rarely differed from those because they are oftentimes very hard to do a differential on, especially with kids who are in a very um, you know kind of high violence area where they're going to potentially show up as attention deficit or highly traumatized or potentially dysregulated and bipolar like it's it, it's not an easy differential and it's also not something that's necessarily functionally treated that much differently oftentimes you know like i think it should be but sometimes it's not and sometimes it's like you give them medicine and see you know if if how they respond to to help with some of the diagnoses which is you know, a whole other st- the whole other thing that we probably should talk to a psychiatrist about. But to me, it's like these are folks who were very well educated. They're they're all d- doctors with a specialty in psychiatry, but they were. I think they were really subjecting themselves to this. You know, what's available information, and how do I fit it into my theory? How does it prove my theory correct? 
And to me, if you're not practicing and really doing that additional piece of really sorting through how am I making my decisions? How am I taking in the data? You know, if I if I pull out and objectively look at is there any data that I either didn't ask for or didn't pay attention to, I think that becomes very, very important. I think so often clinicians just get so stuck in kind of their specialty that they don't look at the, the other pieces. You know, I, I actually had a conversation with somebody yesterday where where she came in wanting to work on a completely different thing. It was like, I want to work on, you know, self-esteem, you know. And the therapist was like, well, I'm an ADHD specialist. So you have a couple of symptoms of ADHD. I mean, it was it was almost that overt. Okay. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Like and and started pointing out, you know, the pieces that could align with that. And and this was somebody, you know, who I've met does not have ADHD. It's like, you know, it's almost kind of like that becomes, you know, really bad. Like that's just really bad practice. But I think there's, you know, if we take that into more of an everyday that you and I might experience as as clinicians who I'm hoping are practicing better than that, it can be very comfortable to fit a client into what we're most comfortable treating. Very well said. <laughs> Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Dangers of specialization. That is a danger of a specialization, for sure. Yeah, having that giant blind spot. I do want to point out uh, another author, researcher, practitioner that some of you have brought to our attention, and especially in response to the the blog that I had written. Terry Marks Tarlow, she has a book called Awakening Clinical Intuition. She's written some other articles. I've been to some of her workshops. She's As have lo- I. She's local to the Los Angeles area here. And... Some of the stuff that she describes is citing the very same research that that we do. She, you know, also a Daniel Kahneman fan. I'm glad to see that in there. And there are a number of people who, who do support what her writings are. But one of the things that I really struggle with in being able to access her work is... Actually, I have two things. One is she over relies on describing things in terms of left brain and right brain, which Mm. has clinically not been true categorizations of systems for a very long time. Got it. And, you know, I am, you know, going to say that, okay, these books and articles are nearing the 10 year mark of, of their shelf life. But, and I am going to give her credit that she is talking about logical versus emotional systems. The other problem, though, is she uses case examples of clinicians intuiting something that only go to support kind of her theory of clinical intuition. She doesn't spend any space in her writings talking about when that intuition is wrong. And so this ends up becoming more into those... Confirmatory bias? (laughs) Well, it's confirmatory bias 
it becomes confirmatory bias in the way that she writes and kind of only picking and choosing the information that she wants. But this is also only using kind of spurious sort of mm. intuition. It's not going into the the holistic intuition. There's no evaluation process that looks at it. And my criticism of this is it doesn't look at all of the times that a clinician is wrong. Mm. That if this is something that can be replicated and done over and over again, her, her writings don't meet that criteria of this happens enough and is learned from enough to really be able to do that. This comes from practice of being able to comprehensively evaluate clients for a diagnosis. Of you know, Several years ago, I was trained to do the autism diagnostic and observation schedule. And this is one of the pieces of evaluating clients of, if they're on the autism spectrum. And it's a semi-structured interview. It's something that, you know, once you've worked with hundreds or thousands of clients on the autism spectrum, being able to really create conditions to be able to see if a client is exhibiting traits of being on the autism spectrum or not. And as part of the training, you're encouraged to do this with both clients on the spectrum and clients who are neurotypical. And the very last question on the evaluation, if you can't come up with, is this client a person with a diagnosis of being on the spectrum? The very last question is, does this person seem autistic? And in the training they talk about this is something that can only be asked with people who have a depth and breadth of experience of working with people with this diagnosis that you can have a gut intuition mm -hmm. to answer that question. And I can see Katie's initial reaction to that. Does this person <laughs> seem autistic? And I'm sure many of you listening had that same sort of reaction, which is that's kind of a crap question. Yeah. It's like, this is a formal test. <laughs> But it comes with needing to have that experience that, you know, meeting the conditions of, does this happen often enough? Are you testing out both, does information fit and does information not fit? And are you getting immediate feedback from the trainings that go along with being able to use a tool like this? When I hear this, I keep thinking about bias, because I think that, that being able to see things objectively is so critical. And I think unexamined bias is going to be a constant challenge in trying to make sure that you're not falling prey to that because we, we, we judge, and this is something that comes from blind spot again, but like we, we consistently judge people as more trustworthy. If their facial features are more similar to us, we consistently judge people as more capable or competent if their eyes are the right width apart from each other. I mean, like there's, there's stuff that feels these unconscious bias and, and off, and we oftentimes categorize people by the social group that they're in, you know, kind of similar, different. I mean, we've seen this with Black Lives Matter. We understand that people are consistently and unconsciously sometimes being biased on true data. And so when I heard the question, does this person seem autistic? Like it would have to be someone that was truly experienced and either not biased towards finding autism everywhere or not biased toward thinking that everyone who is different is potentially autistic. Because I think that especially lately and, and kind of with all of the 
I don't know if it's glamorization, but you know, all of the glamorization, I'm going to call it that for lack of a better word of kind of the, the autistic brain and how that means that they're going to be great forensic scientists, or they're going to be great, you know, detectives or whatever. And so there's, you know, kind of anybody that seems different, even in society goes towards like, are they autistic? You know, is, is there, is there an autistic spec spectrum situation happening or some kind of neurodiversity that's causing this? And to me, I get concerned that, that that can very quickly go into bias and potentially injustice. And so I want to, I just wanted to, to comment on that because as a society, we look for stereotypes in shorthand because it used to be survival. You know, I, you know, people who look different from me are going to attack my civilization. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it is, it is something where those things are no longer relevant or valid and potentially never were. But, but I think there's just this kind of inherent kind of inferential bias, implicit bias that comes to be that, that if we don't pay a lot of attention to that, no matter how much experience that we have, if we're not paying attention to that piece that is ingrained in society, we may still not get to more of an objective evaluation of the data at hand. We would really love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So reach out to us on our social media. We'll include that in our show notes as well. We'll engage with you in a very good system to sort of process as far as what your thoughts are, whether you agree with us or you don't. And so whether you're, you're right or wrong, I'm just joking. Whether you're our favorites or people who are willing to engage in this process with us. But uh, no, we, we really do love your feedback. So reach out to us. You can find our show notes mtsgpodcast.com. While you're over there, check out Therapy Reimagined 2020. That is happening here in September 24th, 25th, 26th. 24th is pre-conference. I'm doing six hours of law and ethics around irrational ethics, looking at some of these very biases that go into writing the ethics codes that we're then held to. Mm. And uh, that's going to be a really fun workshop. So if you're either in the Los Angeles area, or you're coming out for the conference, plan on an extra day just to engage in some more fun and antics with me. <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the conference it. is going to be pretty awesome as well. Simple practice is throwing out all of the CEs and rolling out. We should get them to get a red carpet to just Yes, roll out we'll have the simple practice red carpet. Red carpet. They're they are our presenting sponsor and uh, helping us with CEs. So it's pretty awesome. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.